Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Ano Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Good evening, everyone. Hi, welcome to Hillsborough Castle. My name is Stuart Campbell. I'm the public engagement manager here. And you're very welcome to uh, our first evening in a series uh, marking the NI centenary. Tonight, we're joined by Naomi O'Leary and Tim McInerney, hosts of the Irish Passport podcast. And they'll be discussing uh, place and power. Hi, everybody. First of all, a huge welcome and thank you so much for coming to this very special live episode of the Irish Passport Podcast. It's brilliant to see you. It's brilliant to be here in person and to be able to do this. My name is Naomi O'Leary. My name is Tim McInerney. So if you're not familiar with the podcast, I don't know if any of you are first timers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we are a podcast on the history, uh, culture and politics of Ireland. And we've been running for about four years now. We're on our uh, fourth season and it has been really, really interesting. Uh, What we strive to do is uh, look into some of the lesser known uh, aspects of life on this island. And we're absolutely thrilled to be doing it here with you tonight. Right. I think we should start off by explaining where we are. So right here, we are in the throne room of Hillsborough Castle. Hillsborough Castle is the official seat of the British royal family in Northern Ireland. It has a very uh, fascinating, interesting, rich history. Um, Nowadays, it's a site of political power. It's where political conferences and meetings are still held. Boris Johnson, for example, held a big meeting with Micheál Martin, the Taoiseach and Prime Minister and so on uh, last year to come together over issues like COVID and post-Brexit and so on. But over the years, it's been the site of many important meetings. Uh, Visitors from Benjamin Franklin from the United States, he came prior to the US War of Independence at a time when the current head of the household here, Wills Hill, was the um, then uh, Secretary of State for the Northern Colonies. The Northern Colonies at that time included North America and Ireland. And so that was to talk about this, you know, demands of Americans for independence. Um, It's also been the site of important peace talks um, from the 1985 Anglo-Irish Agreement up into... um, also hosting the first meeting between British monarch and the uh, head of state of an independent Ireland, which happened in 2005 between Queen Elizabeth and President Mary McAleese. Um, So it's a very resonant place Mm. to be doing this podcast. And we are going to be talking about place and power. So how we can read history, read the secret history out of the physical environment. Um, So architecture, landscape, ecology, also place names, what that tells us about the history of place. Yeah, and we have two great people here to help us do that. Uh, We have Linda Irvine, uh, first of all. Linda is leader of the Taurus Irish Language Project, uh, which aims to connect people from Protestant communities uh, with their own history through the Irish language. And uh, she's going to be talking to us later on about place names uh, in Northern Ireland and about place names around here um, uh, and how that can connect us uh, with our landscape. 
Um, we also are delighted to welcome Claire Mitchell, a writer and researcher. Claire is going to be talking to us about the exploration of the landscape and how to find the hidden history, the secret history, sometimes the subversive history that's hidden around us in the physical environment. So we can't wait to get into those discussions. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, we should say also that this is being recorded yeah. uh, for listeners at home. And when you came in, you probably found a card on your seat. So if you want to listen back to this evening or hear any of our other episodes uh, from our four seasons, uh, you, can, you can find our podcast uh, through that card. And because we have listeners at home, I would love just to describe a little bit where we are physically, yeah. you know, um, uh, and how the power, um, uh, how power and place come together in a place uh, like Hillsborough Castle. Uh, so Hillsborough Castle, despite its name, is actually a big Georgian house. It was built in the 1750s uh, by the Hill family. Um, and it's in this beautiful town of uh, Hillsborough, which we've really been enjoying uh, visiting uh, over the last uh, little while. Um, and it's in County Down. Now, this is um, a, a big, an unusual kind of um, building. It's an L-shaped Georgian mansion and it faces onto a Georgian square, which is a little bit unusual for mansions from the 18th century. Uh, usually, as you'll probably notice, and especially in Ireland, um, 18th century mansions tend to be quite far away from the road. Often all you'll see of 18th century mansions are the gateway, and you often have this gateway that's quite central to the local village, but all you see is the gateway, and you actually have to get past the gate, and usually very tall trees uh, to get anywhere near the house itself. And something that's very interesting about these houses is that they are uh, simultaneously places of exclusivity and places that are designed to be looked at. Um, you know, the whole idea of a great mansion like this is that people look at them, uh, but the way that they're set up is to try and keep people out in a kind of false sense of keep, keeping people out. Of course, people were never really kept out of places like this. Um, in the 18th century, it was very common for anyone. Anyone could visit a house like this. Um, but something you had to do was dress up appropriately. You just had to wear the right kind of clothes. And when I say anyone, I mean really absolutely anyone. Uh, but of course, when it comes to the people who could afford that uh, certain uh, outfit that you needed to wear, um, you're probably going up uh, into the gentry, really. Are you talking about like people who were going to ask for a resolution in a dispute or that kind of thing? or? Yes, this yeah. too. Um, tenants would probably have done that mostly, uh, uh, maybe at the gates. <laughs> um, okay. But um, no, people would come in and treat the houses like a museum. Really? Exactly like this house is now. Um, we looked at some of the paintings here um, earlier on with uh, the wonderful uh, staff here at Hillsborough, and uh, they were talking to us about the Grand Tour. So a lot of these, um, uh, these upper orders would have come home from Italy and from France with these beautiful oil paintings. And they were designed to be looked at. Um, so people would come in and very much treat big houses like this, like museums, which is kind of why they're gallery shaped, you know. Um, they're designed to be toured, essentially, these houses. Right. Uh, you know, there's nothing coincidental about that. Uh, so that's where we are now. Um, we're also surrounded by beautiful acres of parkland, which has mm -hmm. been really, really gorgeously uh, maintained. So if you're ever in the area at home, you should absolutely visit um, this park. I think what's interesting about the landscape around here is, like you were saying, nothing is an accident, nothing is incidental. Mm. If you look at the grounds that we're in, everything is very much a created landscape. Um, so you've got these sort of sweeping lawns and avenues of trees and ponds, and this is a created landscape. So the natural ecology of Ireland is forest, it's like Atlantic 
rainforest, basically. And initially, this entire island would have been extremely wooded. And that is still reflected in place names to this day. Place names like uh, Dura, Derry, meaning an oak forest, or anywhere that's called Kill comes from Quill, which is a wood. Um, and what uh, this, this intense forest landscape would have really started to change in the 12th century. And it changed due to shifts in uh, rule and politics and political systems. It became something that worked very well to clear fell forests for a number of reasons. One is that it's a resource, so that wood is very useful. You can clear fell forests, you get that, it's like cash. It's like, it's like exploiting coal or whatever, it's, it's literally a resource. The other thing is that you get this really good land out of it because it's what you call virgin soil. Underneath that, the forests will be very, very rich fertilized soil where you can grow stuff year after year and get crops. It also has a political purpose because it just, it basically causes ecosystem collapse. If you don't have trees, you don't have animals and you remove a traditional food source of the societies that previously existed on that land. It, these forests would have been places of shelter and sustenance for people initially. So clear felling them removes that. So it's a, it's a political act. And this is something that it's really fascinatingly reflected to this day in terms of the landscape. So typically in Europe, the um, forestation, the percentage of the land that is forested is over a third. So it's an average of 35.5% across Europe generally. Uh, the UK and Ireland stick out with their very, very low level of forestation. In, and Northern Ireland is the very lowest, it's 7% here. It's 11% in the Republic and in the overall UK, it's 13%. Um, this is connected very much to the political process, the plantation that went here. It's about asserting control. We do see forests, of course. There's forests around here. A lot of these kinds of forests are created forests. So the um, rich people at the time would have wanted to have hunting grounds and they actually had to create those. So they needed to plant forests so that they had grounds to hunt on. And these often would have been enclosed within their estate. That's a pattern that you see across Europe. It's, a, it's to do with a shift in the conceptualization of land ownership from seeing things like forests as a commonwealth, as a source of common sustenance, whether that's fuel for wood or uh, things to eat, to being something that was conceived of as private property, as being falling under the ownership of estates, powerful families, and those who asserted themselves through military might. So that's what you can read out of the landscape around us. Mm. Tim, I wanted to ask you, because you're an 18th century historian, and your research particularly is on the nobility, social rank, and the, how social rank is asserted. What kind of things do you see around us that tell you about the assertion of social rank and this idea of a hierarchy? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I, a lot of my research focuses on um, essentially the performance of social rank. Um, social rank, of course, as we, as we all know, um, and everyone has always known, is, is fictional. You know, it's something that we make up um, and it doesn't exist unless we consistently reference it and um, 
uh, call it into being. Yeah, kind of, give it yeah. credence, you right. know, like give it credence. Everyone needs to observe, it's like the emperor's new clothes kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. like exactly, like nobody's noble unless we accept that we're not noble. Okay. You know, by accepting that we're, we, we're not noble nobility, we're automatically legitimizing that nobility is a real thing that exists in the world, which it, it isn't, you know, <laughs> like it actually isn't a real thing. Um, right. It is a fiction, but it's a very um, powerful fiction. Mm. And uh, it, it, the re I mean, we can see that because it's still around today after after literally thousands of years. I mean, mm. we have nobility in antiquity. We have nobility in the works of Homer, essentially. Um, so in order to keep it going, um, it has to be reinforced everywhere and all the time. So something that nobility have always done, and particularly in the 18th century, and why in the 18th century? Because, of course, they were getting insecure in the 18th century. Was I wonder why. I wonder why. Um, was conspicuous display, um, just constantly showing people wealth. And it's not just because they want to show off their wealth. It's because other people don't have this. So having guilt, having gold, having thrones, having um, uh, gemstones, um, this is a way to create a, a chasm between ordinary people and you. The vast majority of people in the world will never have that, mm -hmm. will never have these possessions. So it kind of reinforces this notion that, that the nobility or the royalty are somehow intrinsically different. Right. Now this, this is really interesting in a place uh, like Hillsborough and in Ireland in general, uh, because a lot of the um, landed elite in Ireland um, by the 18th century were essentially arriviste. You know, they, they hadn't been here for that long. And according to the rank system, the, the way people thought about rank in Britain, that wasn't okay at all. You um, needed to have like a long history in a place. Yeah. So you, you didn't have that much authority as someone who was newer, is mm -hmm. that it? Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. So, you know, the Duke of Devonshire, you know, should own Devonshire. You know, that's okay. you know, okay. like, that the, the notion behind all this. Yeah. Um, I mean, that had changed a lot by the 18th century already. Uh, but no, um, you know, it, it's difficult to elicit authority by being the natural masters of a place mm. when you weren't the natural masters of a place 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, when there were other people who were masters of that place, Place, who are still around, who are, you know, who everyone knows, you know, are still around, they're also claiming the place too. Uh, so the Anglo-Irish um, aristocracy were extremely insecure. And one of the things that they did um, that the British used to laugh about them a lot um, was naming their houses after the, their family name. Uh, so Hillsborough is one of those, for instance. Uh, Hillsborough was founded by uh, Moises Hill in the 17th century. He was a younger uh, son of the gentry. He didn't have any land himself. He wouldn't have been considered a natural kind of lord of the land by any means. Uh, but he, you know, by naming this place Hillsborough, it gives the mm -hmm. impression that the hills have always been here right. and that they always will be here. You know, this name doesn't go away. And we see these names all over Ireland. So we have Ed Edwardstown, Castle Blaney, you know, mm -hmm. all these names after the families themselves. And um, uh, actually a really good example of how this was seen is in um, the novels of William Thackeray. Uh, Thackeray is always laughing at this, um, at Irish uh, landlords who... The pretensions of them. The pretensions of them. And, and their fake histories. Their fake histories yeah. and their insecurities. Um, so in, in Barry Lyndon, if anyone's... You, you might be familiar with the novel or the film in the 1970s. Um, uh, Barry Lyndon, there's a scene where a few landlords are talking together 
and they say, oh, are you Redmond of, of Castle Redmond? And he says, no, I'm Redmond of Redmond Town. You don't know me. And he says, oh, are you Fitz, Fitzsimmons of Fitzsimmonsburg? He says, no, 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 Castle Fitzsimmons over here. You know? <laughs> uh, so it's this, you know, people in London like Thackeray were laughing at this because mm-hmm. it's not how the upper orders are supposed to act. You know, the upper orders aren't supposed to have to pretend. They're supposed to have all this already. Uh, so it shows a lot, you know, of, of what was missing from the sense of authority, I think, right. uh, these place names. I find that really fascinating as well. Moises Hill, that story of the younger son who didn't have land, who had this military career and was able to come to Ireland and acquire land. And that tells you about the opportunity that new lands offered both here and further abroad for mm. people a way to move up in the world in a system like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and how symbols um, as well, uh, you know, we still do this, like the, it's not just the nobility who does this, um, mm-hmm. symbols as well are a way to elicit consent um, uh, to authority. Um, so a really good example of this that f- the historian Franco Gorman um, wrote about once um, is the courtroom and the courtroom with robes and wigs and all, all this. Another example that I might say um, personally are churches. Mm-hmm. Um, the churches in Armagh, for instance, um, these you know, great big staircases that you know, intimidate you by, just by being there. The courts and wigs in a court of law function today exactly like the robes and wigs of the nobility functioned in the 18th century. And the rooms of the court of law functioned exactly the same as, as rooms like this. Mm-hmm. They were a way to constantly tell you, you are not, you don't belong here. It's to discomfort you. <laughs> it's to discomfort so you. So you, yeah. you arrive as a supplicant mm-hmm. or yeah, someone who's there on sufferance. Yeah, that, that sounds maybe a little bit harsh. But I mean, because people really did believe that these people were nobles because God wanted them there. You that know? was the idea, right? Yeah, they're yeah. just kind of constantly reminding you that this is natural. This division between the high and the low is natural. This is the order of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I thought a really fin- fascinating thing to discover when we were exploring this place and the lands around here was the Quaker graveyard. There's a Quaker graveyard, which is about, I don't know, 300 meters that way or 200 meters that way. Um, this land all around here, these gardens, it actually used to have a road running through it. This was the road to the village of Moira and it ran just over to my right uh, along there. But in about 1830, the, at the time, Marquis Hill, the, the one that was around at that point, wanted to extend the garden. So if you walk down there into the garden, there's a series of stepping stones that tell the story of what happened that the Quakers have laid. And it says that the Marquis wanted to extend the garden, shops, houses, and the Quaker meeting house were demolished. Then a new Quaker meeting house was built somewhere else and a new graveyard. But they've maintained this plot of land as a Quaker burial site there. So it says this remains a place of contemplation for Quakers and we hope it will be for you too. And then you can enter into this little circumscribed yew garden, which has mounds and, and yews growing, kind of think of it, which shows the, I suppose, the social engineering of place mm. and power mm. um, that we've been talking about in a really stark way. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, which was, um, uh, last I'll say on it, but which is also a common thing for these big houses to do, mm-hmm. um, to demolish villages because they were in the wrong place. Either they were too close to the house and they ruined the illusion of ex- exclusivity um, or they ruined a view or things like that. So you see it all the time in England um, as well that villages were rebuilt 
And often they built nice new villages. You know, the villagers might have, mightn't have been that upset if they got a nice new house, who knows? But yeah, yeah it's a pity um, uh, to lose that little piece of the landscape. I wanted to ask you, Tim, as well, since we're talking about these symbols and social rank, about an object here. I don't know if you can see this, everyone who's in the audience, but if you maybe like stand up a little bit, there's a hat here, a really extravagant feathered hat, which is sitting on these thrones. Actually, sorry, I should say they're not thrones. They are seats of power. But basically this place was a private residence of the Hill family until partition. After partition, after the island was divided, it meant that the royal family needed an official seat then in Northern Ireland. Their official seat in Ireland used to be what's now Oris and Uchtaron, where the Irish president lives, uh, the current Michael D. Higgins. Uh, that used to be where the representative of the monarchy was. Uh, so they needed a new one. So the British state actually bought this place off the Hill family. And then there, at that time, they were governors of Northern Ireland. And these are the official seats of the governors. So it would have seated the governor and his wife and they would be the official representatives of the monarchy and of the crown. Um, there isn't governors anymore. We now have secretary of states since the 1970s because political arrangements were changed. So these seats are not actually used. Nobody sits on them because they're, 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 they're governor seats. They're not for secretary of states. But the hat remains, Tim. <laughs> so here's this really fluffy hat, the, flat, the hat of the governor. Can you tell us what that means? Uh, listen, it's, it's quite new to me as well. It's the first yeah. time I've laid my eyes on this hat earlier on today. Yeah. Um, but this is a hat for the governor that is decorated with swan feathers. Uh, so we see the same kind of idea of kind of rare or unusual decorations that ordinary people just probably won't have, can't yeah. imitate, you know, inimitable um, uh, symbols. Um, these symbols, they can sometimes be quite cynical. Um, I mean, so, you know, when you have a new office or a new kind of rank in times of political shift, you have to create new symbols. Um, you also have to create new titles. Um, so the hills, of course, were given titles, even though they, they came from nothing. Or that, well, they came from quite a bit, but they, but they were... They, they went up in the world, <laughs> They came yeah. from less, indeed. Yeah. Um, because they made loads of money by buying land here um, right. in this area. They bought loads and loads of land. And like um, you said earlier, Naomi, this was, quote-unquote, virgin land, mm -hmm. similar to the land in um, North America at the time, which was, of course, being colonized at the same time, mm. at exactly the same time. And this was just money, money, money everywhere. The trees were money and the soil was money. Um, uh, you know, so you could make a lot of money very quickly. Of course, it was dangerous to do it. You but needed to assert it through, mil to, through, through military force. force. Yeah. Yeah. Once you had done that and you became one of the richer people in the kingdom, you have to get a title. Because if, if, you don't, if the government doesn't give you a title, you ruin the illusion of nobility. You ruin the illusion of social rank because you become living proof that anyone can become rich. And it's not a natural division of the rich people who have always been there right. and everyone else who have always been there. So quickly, uh, you know, as soon as possible, when someone gets super rich, you need to give them a title that is right. suitable to their amount of money. So okay. yeah, back to the hat. So, Hills, oh, sorry. <laughs> so then the Hillsboroughs, they got the name Borough, which is like an official thing, and they got to call it this, like, I don't know what it was, Hillstown. And they, they got a title and they became an important political family and sat in the House of Lords. That's, it. that's what happened, right? Yeah. yeah, and that's kind of why you're in the House of Lords anyway. The House of Lords um, is, was there. It was justified because these people just had so much money. Uh -huh. So it was like a system, we could compare it to a system today where we just gave a vote to like Jeff Bezos 
<laughs> and Bill Gates <laughs> because they just control so much of our world anyway that they should they have so much vested interest in all this. Okay. Uh, so it was similar to that. So it, there was there was a reasoning there as well. Uh, but yeah, when you get a new title, you need to kind of make new symbols. Um, and this hat is a very good example of that. Another amazing example is for the uh, viceroys in India um, after the creation of the Raj. And the, the viceroys, of course, there was no history at all to them there. Right. But in order to create a, a simulacrum of eliciting power, a simulacrum of this old system, um, I, I believe that the government actually went to the theatres in the West End in London and got costumes of kings and gave them to the viceroy to dress up in to make the viceroy look as authoritative as possible. Right. But it was literal performance. I mean, these were the clothes of the theatre um, that he was wearing. But it was so important to constantly reinforce who he was to through symbols like this. To perform this rank, yeah. right, to, yeah. to keep it real. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love that like story about the place name of Hillsborough because it does actually contain that history, the granting of official borough status, granted political power, it also granted it, like a sort of a soldier's garrison here, mm. which sort of still exists in a ceremonial role. Um, and But of course, there's another story of place names. There was another name for this place before, wasn't there, Tim? There was, yes. So as many of you might know uh, in this room, this place was originally called Kremlin, uh, which means uh, Crooked Valley. And of course, we can see in the topography of the landscape that there is um, a, a slight valley here. And there's lots of, we, we, we looked up the surrounding place names in, I suppose, just uh, one or two kilometer radius of here. And there's some beautiful uh, place name history just uh, around here. Do you want to yeah. go with the first one, Naomi? Yeah, sure. Liz Nagarvi, if anyone knows that. Liz Nagarbach is the Gaelic, uh, Gaelge, the Irish for it. Um, that, uh, that Lias means the uh, it's the flat area in the middle of a ring fort or a fairy fort. Fairy forts or ring forts are old uh, fortifications um, dating some of them back to the Iron Age. And what they would have been is they actually act as natural amphitheaters. So uh, Nagarvak means the gamesters. So this is the flat area in the middle of a ring fort where the gamesters are. And what is meant by gamesters is that this natural amphitheater feature of the landscape became a site of kind of theater, people to play uh, cards, uh, uh, dice, things like that. So it was, a, it was a, that sort of gathering point. So it's a really, really specific uh, landscape refer reference that now has become Lisna Garvey. Yeah, right. Yeah. And yeah. this 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 idie of lish, because if it was just um, talking about the ring fort itself, it would be ra nagarvi. So you, right. have, you have all these places called ra this and ra that. Yeah. And they're, de they're describing the, the whole ring forts themselves. Uh, usually, you know, these were settlements originally, or they might have been military settlements. Um, so they kind of survived in the memory of the land. Uh, but lis is very uh, specific about that middle area. Yeah. And also this middle area of a, of a fairy fort later on was, you know, it was kind of supernatural. Like people, you know, maybe didn't go in there. So this idea yeah. of like, gamesters, you know, getting into the middle of the ring fort and doing this and that, what playing dice, doing? gambling. There's, it contains a sort of a social history as well. Yeah. And you were saying that there were also other place names that refer to that, the, those kind of extremely ancient constructions that would have been in the landscape. 
right? Yeah, so we have one, we have one nearby um, called uh, Karnak, I suppose, or Carney maybe uh, it's pronounced. Um, these anglicizations, you never know how they're going to be pronounced <laughs> after, yeah. after a while, which comes from um, Karnak, Osgelga, uh, and that's just describing a, la a landscape of, of cairns, um, a landscape of cairns which could be anything. Cairns. I mean, they, very often they're burial sites, right? They're well, yeah, but well, my understanding of a cairn is like a court cairn, so like a Paleolithic burial site where you would have had uh, like a, a kind of um, circular arrangement of stones and you can have a passage one where you go in and inside like yeah, they're famous from the Boyne Valley where you have like Newgrange and all these famous ones mm. but yeah so it's a burial site yeah, yeah. that's a cairn my uh, understanding yeah, yeah sure uh, one one that I really loved yeah um, is a place just down the road called uh, Eden Trillick I know you know with a name like Eden Trillick that there's gonna have have some cool meaning behind it. Right. So what yeah. what is that one? Could be anything. I, I can wait. know. I know why it caught your eye. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. Um, it turns out uh, it comes from Aidon Three Lac, um, which means the hill of the three standing stones. And I found out even more about it. It's not just three standing stones. Uh, historians think that it's probably a dolmen. Um, the three stones, you know, uh, arranged into into the dolmen shape. Uh, for listeners, maybe at home who who aren't looks familiar, looks a bit like the pie symbol. Yes, like, it looks exactly like yeah. the pie symbol. <laughs> Two standing stones and then a capstone on top. Mm -hmm. And there's another like extremely ancient monument, yeah. basically. Yeah, absolutely. From back in the day. Um, so you know, Hillsborough. That that's another layer to this, right? Mm -hmm. It's inscribing um, history on a landscape in exactly the same way as these other names uh, as well. We can look at this history just throughout different strata yeah. of things that have happened in place. And very much what you, know, you can see this change from Crumlin to Hillsborough, you know, you can see the place um, and the power of the place because, changing. Well, it's a very political name. Like if you look at some of these other ones, like obviously Belfast, famously Belfast is the mouth of a particular river. Mm. And then um, this one around here, Kulkavi, Kulkeva is, it's the nook, like cool, the nook or a hollow and a cave meaning like a lock of hair. And the, it doesn't mean actually hair. It actually means marsh grasses that look like hair. So that's like a re another really like very literal, like almost pictorial description. Mm. And it's actually we saw some when we were walking around in the garden. We saw that like marsh grass growing, which was really cool. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a nice idea. And you can see it if you go to these places. You can see yeah. the marsh. It's still there, you yeah. know, so it's, it's beautiful to see that. Yes. Listen, I, I think that's a really great point to bring in Linda, yes. right? <laughs> Linda Irvine, of course, ex uh, knows everything to do, like you know what you're talking about when it comes to place names, because, um, but I'd love if you could tell us a little bit about how discovering the meaning behind place names sort of drew you into the Irish language in the first place. Well, I think one of the things that always struck me, you know, because I had no Irish at all, I knew nothing about the language up until 10 years ago. And when I started to learn the language, that was that discovery. Of course, the, the names are all around us and all these, these place names that, you know, I just, they'd always been there, but I didn't know they had meaning. I didn't know they contained meaning. And even the basic, basic fact of being born in a city, you know, living there your whole life, but never knowing its real name. And it's such a such a revelation to find out that Belfast, which doesn't mean anything because it's a it's a transliteration of the original Irish, obviously, was of course Belfastia, the mouth of the, the Sandbank Ford. And for me that began a journey 
where you know you suddenly you're you're out driving and you're going oh that's the height of this and that's the river of that and that's the bottom of that and and sort of feeling my goodness I must have spent my whole life with a paper bag over my head that I never question why you've got the same elements over and over again because there's again the same description of land and that all these place names they just have these beautiful I suppose hidden messages that's what it is for mm. me yeah. And, uh, and I just wanted to share that with other people. And I wanted to say, you know, look around you. And if you don't have any Irish, you don't have a connection with your own environment. And that, that's, I felt very strongly about that. Mm. But even some of the things you're saying about the hills are really resonating with me because there's, there's two stories that um, strike me about Moses Hill that links back to East Belfast, where I'm from. Mm. And Moses Hill bought what was the, the site of Con O'Neill's castle. And Con O'Neill was the last Gaelic lord of the area where I'm from. And sadly, um, his, his stone chair, the Clandy Boy stone chair, which still exists and is now in the Ulster Museum, Moses Hill had that in his possession. Now, the Tyrone O'Neill's, their stone chair was destroyed because to make sure, you know, they were seen as a threat where poor Con... He just was so so inferior, I think, in their eyes. But it's supposed to be that Moses Hill used it as a garden ornament. This is a stone chair, so this would have been a symbol of power. The inauguration chair. Of the chair. Gaelic clan. Yeah, okay. you know. Right. So you can see that that sort of, um, you know, the subversion of the power, where it's, right. just, it's just an ornament now, something that was so important in Gaelic life, all of a sudden, you know, becomes just this trifle. Um, um, the ruin of the castle, what was left of the castle. Now, Moses Hill did want to protect that. And the story goes that he asked, uh, you know, a local tradesperson to come and build a wall around the castle to protect what was left. And they did. But what they did was they used the stones from the castle to build the <laughs> wall around the castle. And that was the, the end of the castle, wow. you know. So it's just interesting in the other story, about the hills, and I'm not sure which one of the Hill family it was, but it seems they had a great interest in the Irish language and mm. actually erected Irish language signs in the area. So bring back that, I think. So round here in Hillsborough, I think which, which this was one of the Marquess's Hill in Arthur the- Hill. Arthur Hill. Mm. Okay, Arthur Hill. Okay, when was he around then, Tim? He died in 1845. Okay. The date sticks out. <laughs> <laughs> and I think he founded. Um, I think he founded a, a, a Gaelic language association in 1830. Right. I might be wrong about that. Um, but yeah, yes, he was this four person, this four person of, of Irish language learning. So it's a real heritage. Right? Yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. one of those examples of like the long Protestant history with mm. the Irish language, which you've been talking about. Can, can you tell us about your work in sort of? Um, I don't know, reigniting that interest? Like, how, what have, how have you gone about it and how have people reacted? Well, I think it's been, um, you know, it has been quite a journey and the, the organisation that I run is called Taurus, which means journey. And it started just over 10 years ago when I started learning Irish and it became more and more frustrated when I saw the links to my own community and also, again, the love for the language that I wanted to share with other people. So about just over nine years ago, we started Taurus and... We opened the door and people just came and they came. And I, the thing that fascinated me was so many people from the unionist community who just had the same feelings that I had. We felt that because of the tradition that they came from, that they had been denied access to the language and they wanted, they were interested, they were intrigued by it. 
when our, our recent kind of situation came um, with the, the language legislation and a lot of negativity around the language, I thought that would, you know, would, would lower the numbers. But in fact, it's done the opposite. More and more people have become involved and they say, well, you know, I'm hearing about it all over the news. I'm reading about it. I want to know what the fuss was all about. So I'm going to come and learn a few There's no such thing as bad publicity. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, our new term has just started and, you know, we have levels from... You know, very basic beginners right up to art level and core classes. But the actual two of the, the beginners classes, which happen on a Thursday night, we have almost 100 people. Wow. In two, when we have to put them in two separate halls. Mm. So, you know, it's just a massive, massive interest. And it's grown and grown and grown. And people just come and say, I want to do this too. I want to know what this is about. I want to learn a few words. And we now have nine people university studying Irish wow. who we provide scholarships for. And um, five of them are doing degrees and four of them are doing diplomas. That's fantastic. Well, well done. Um, yeah. uh, do a lot of people give up? Do a lot of people say, oh, OK, oh, this was fun, but that's, that's enough? Yeah, because studying the language is hard. And I certainly know that. I'm not a, a natural language learner, but sure. I've managed to go from a couple of faculties and I'm doing a degree in Irish. And I, you know, I always say, if I can do it, anybody can do it. Because I remember in the very early days sitting with the words Gajemar Tattoo written on a piece of paper written what it meant in English and written phonetically and thinking, how would you ever say that without the piece of paper? Mm -hmm. So I would say, that's where I started from, you know, and if I can do it, you can. So yeah, a lot of people start and they get a couple of fuckle and then they, they kind of, it gets tough and they, they, they can't keep it going. But it's really, really surprising how many people just come back year after year after year and they just really persevere. And I think... One of the lovely things is it's such a social thing, mm. um, you know, when you, you, you find this whole world, it's like opening the door out into, you know, a whole social life and music and stories and, and just a richness. Mm. It's because it's intimately connected with the culture. It's fascinating because at this point, like the one of the most vibrant, rich Irish language scenes now is Belfast. Absolutely. Mm. Um, there's like this energy about it yeah which is yeah it's uh yeah. it's really interesting and it's a lovely thing as well because the northern dialect in irish is one of the like richest and most mm. beautiful so it's great to see it kind of thriving yeah. i think another thing that really interested me you know when we started and over the years you know people have this kind of idea why why is somebody from the unionist community would you be interested in irish and i had a friend who said well I'm more shocked that you wouldn't be interested in Irish because it's all around us. You know, we're nearly breathing it in. It's it really a surprise mm. when you're in denial of it or you don't recognise it, you don't acknowledge it and you're not interested in it. How could you not be interested in it when it's, it's just everywhere? One of the things that really struck me actually when we were looking up the place names and we were coming up with ideas is there's loads of places called Lambeg and the meaning that's given to Lambeg is Lambeg which will mean small church or a small plot of land, small piece of land, which is fascinating because the meaning, like the Lambic drum as a symbol, it's really embedded, you know, the language is embedded everywhere. As you say, you'll find it. <laughs> mm, mm, yeah, you'll yeah, find it yeah. everywhere. Um, yeah, there, there's so much. And of course, I mean, we can't forget uh, as well that uh, a lot of the Protestant community um, came from uh, Scots Gaelic speaking 
um, origins as well. A lot mm -hmm. of um, uh, the, uh, uh, the first arrivers are in the plantations were sp speaking Scots Gaelic. So maybe actually Lambeg, I'm thinking maybe there might be a connection there. That's true. Mm. And um, yeah, like also like the first, I think, translation into Gaelga of the Bible was obviously by Protestants because they had an interest in translating the Bible. So there's all of these like historically, f like if, historic examples of like pioneers. Mm. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, so something that we're hearing a lot actually on the podcast from, from listeners uh, are people in the north uh, from the unionist community who have discovered by tracing back their family that their very close ancestors were Irish speakers, yeah. like maybe even their grandparents or definitely great-grandparents and people living in Belfast, people living in the cities. Yeah. So lots of people discovering that all the time. Um, can, have you had any moments in the class of people connecting with a broader history uh, through, through the language? Yes, absolutely. We actually did a piece of research looking at the census, 1901 and 1911 census by people in East Belfast who had listed themselves as Irish speakers. Now, lots of them are stroked out, so what we did, we focused on the ones that weren't stroked out. And one of the things we found, which I really found really interesting, was the 32 counties of Ireland were represented by people who had moved into East Belfast. And of course, you know, my family, I'm third generation of my family who have been born in East Belfast, but my great-grandparents came from rural areas. My great-grandfather was from the Mays and my great-grandmother was from St. Fields, so not too far away from that. So, you know, as Belfast people, our ancestry are rural. And depending on where we came from, you know, the Irish language was there. So, so many people, I think, are starting to discover that and they want to make links to those roots again. Okay. And also, you mentioned Scotland. And for me, the language is such a linguistic link between these islands, you know, not just with the, the, the Gaelic language over to Scotland and obviously the Isle of Man. And um, there was actually um, Manx people were planted around County Down mm. and brought the, the, um, the, the Gaelic with them. But um, also that it's part of the family of Celtic languages and Celtic languages spoken throughout these islands at one time. Mm -hmm. So for me, it is such a, a wonderful familial link that says, you know, we have these linguistic links between ourselves, you know, within these islands. And you look in the place names, the richness of that, our surnames, the words that we use in our everyday speech. And for me, that's just something to, to celebrate. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Listen, I'd love to move on to, uh, to Claire. Yeah, let's bring in I'd love Claire. to just ask uh, Linda, before we move on, yeah. one or two of your favourite place names that you... Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, I'll have to do this one because I, I just think it is so lovely and it's, it's got a, a personal um, link. So my mother, my father's from East Belfast, but my mother's from North Belfast and she's from a place called Laganil, or at least I never heard it called anything but Laganil all my life. Now... It's spelt, sometimes it's spelt L-I-G, sometimes it's spelt L-E-G. And modern people now, people from outside the area, they call it Liganil and all sorts of things. But the original name by locals is Liganil. And it's Liganil because it's the hollow of the limestone. So, right. of course, they're pronouncing it as the Irish was, which is so beautiful. Mm. And then another one closer to home, well, there's two I'm going to mention quickly. There's Nachnagunay. And it's Crocknagunyuni, the Hill of the Rabbits, and the local primary school has a Hill and Rabbits. And another little local primary school is Lisnashara, Lisnasharach, the Fort of the Folds, and mm -hmm. its badge has the Fort of the Folds as. So these four are like the forces. school crests. The school they have the crest. rabbits and so the folds. Obviously, yeah. people knew uh, their people Gaelic knew. place names. And, yeah. um, so, when again, 
I knew these places all my life, but had no idea of the meaning. So mm. the richness and the beauty of that, you know. Yeah. That's absolutely beautiful. Now, yeah. listen, um, moving on to Claire. Claire Mitchell's research fascinates me so much. Yeah. <laughs> I like, look forward to tweets and new leads on the research. Yeah. Could you, so maybe could you just tell us a little bit about well, what your research is, is about for the listeners and for the audience? Hi, yeah. Um, well, first of all, I'm one of Linda's tenacious or rubbish learners because I'm in the Bunrang for the third time this year yeah. and actually find my own Protestant Irish-speaking ancestors on the Shankill Road in the late 19th century, which I'd started learning Irish before. So it, there was some kind of emotional pull towards it. It just, if Linda's place tourist, just feels like being at home. And I suppose being part of the kind of new Protestant Irish speaking movement. I'll be optimistic with the speaking. I've still got my papers. <laughs> um, and having grown up in a religiously dissenting church, my parents are Quakers now. And as somebody whose politics is kind of green and on the left, I'd always felt like I kind of didn't, my politics wasn't quite fitting into the box it was supposed to in Northern Ireland. And um, it's always compelled me to search further and further back for why do I feel like this? Am I the only person, much as Linda described, you know, her feelings of not quite fitting in and trying to make it make sense. So recently I've been working on a book about 1798, but it's about the spirit of 1798 in the present, really trying to find where did those United Irish ideals go? Where did the politics land in the 21st century? And I suppose the fact that I'm trying to write a book about the search for a spirit implies that it wasn't really very obvious to me what happened to that kind of moment of togetherness. And because I was trying to write the book during lockdown, um, usually what I do, I'm, I used to be a sociologist, is I would just have cups of tea in people's kitchen and just tell stories. But we had to do it outside because we were in semi-permanent lockdown. So I've spent really the last year walking and talking with friends around the counties of Down and Antrim, trying to reconnect with those older histories and um, sense of place, I suppose really to look for secrets and clues and things hidden in the landscape to feel, make us feel more at home. And I know it was a, an ordinary thing during lockdown. Everybody was kind of reconnecting, weren't they, with the places yeah. that they were in because they were stuck there. But I definitely, I think I'll, me and my friends, we had like a deeper quest. And in terms of the relationship between place and power, the 1798 stuff and those Protestant kind of small towns and villages where I grew up, it really was buried and silenced really quickly. I've been looking at United Irish gravestones for years now, and very often you would see, like it's a semi-public, semi-private space, but 1798 the eight would be doctored you know mm. to cover up wow. what happened or the inscriptions would be left vague it'd be very rare you'd see like lost its life at the battle of you know arts mm. maybe there's i think there's one stone that says that uh, or maybe a name added 50 years later mm. when the heat had died down yeah. sometimes people literally buried the history underneath the earth in the kind of artifacts and personal possessions that they had so the history not only retreated into people's private homes but like was concealed almost in the fibres of their houses. Mm -hmm. There's a farmer near where I live who dug up French Revolution crockery in a field in his farm. You know, wow. just buried that shit. Yeah. And um, another guy I know was doing a house clearance and he cut a cutlass out of a mattress, you know, buried in the very fibre of the mattress. Wow. And to get to the Antiques Roadshow. Somebody emailed me yesterday 
that in Six Road Ends, this kind of Betsy Gray country, um, there's a Betsy Gray cafe now there, which is very brave, but before there was the Ballygreeny post office, and it used to have a radical teapot, <laughs> a United <laughs> Irish teapot, and there were stories about this teapot, you know, and it all was, they were told with a riskiness, you know, the teapot was maybe buried you know, in the back of the house, out of view. And so that's a history that just, you know, was whipped from view, I think, in a lot of those Protestant areas. But it's mm. one little story that I have about people resisting the new kind of power or the new political conclusion that came from the defeat of the rebellion. In the back of Little's book on Betsy, Betsy Gray or Hearts of Down, there's a little note about Warwick Street in Donaghadee. And it said that there was an informer called James Dillon, and he had built a house with blood money that he'd got from informing an Archibald Warwick, who was a Presbyterian minister. He was hanged outside his church at Kirkcoven. But these ministers are really popular. People really liked them, and people were pissed off. Mm. So um, when he built his house, the locals wouldn't let him forget it, and they called it Warwick Street. Warwick Street doesn't exist in Donaghadee. Its official name on the map today and throughout the historical maps is Union Street. <laughs> wow. wow. But it makes it into the 1901 census. Mm. It occasionally sneaks into newspaper articles. And I went there a few months ago just to chat to locals. And yeah, within living memory, the locals called it Warwick, Warwick Street, Street, still yeah. as an act of resistance. To know, remember this memory. popular... Yeah. Fascinating. Um, maybe a quick recap, maybe for anyone who, yeah, who might be lost. Yeah, I was going to ask you, Tim, like, <laughs> maybe you can just run us through, like... Three sentences, if I... Yeah. 1798, and what exactly is so threatening and subversive about 1798 to the kinds of power structures that we've been talking about? Right. Well, like, in very, very, very uh, short terms, 1798 was this huge, huge rebellion in Ireland. Like, it was absolutely massive, way bigger than anything that we saw in the War of Independence or anything. Like, yeah. absolutely huge rebellion. Um, some, uh, you know, tens and tens of thousands of people, um, uh, and all over the country. Um, like, people rising up all over the island of Ireland. Um, but we don't talk about it that much anymore. Yeah. Um, it was kind of erased from history, which Claire has, has mentioned uh, there, like um, uh, very strategically, because it brought up these problems. Uh, first of all, it was, uh, it was secular. Um, it, 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 it was not focused on religious divisions or colonial divisions at all. Um, instead, we had, we had Protestant, Catholic, dissenter, all factions of society, joining together into these militias, these armed groups against uh, British rule. And that was inspired, of course, by the French Revolution, which had just happened a few years earlier. Um, so I mean, that's threatening from so many different angles at once. Mm -hmm. um, of course, you know, like you're, you're essentially inviting in the French. The French literally were invited in. Um, <laughs> but you're also, you're breaking down the mode of power in Ireland, the mode of, of control in Ireland, which was division, like had happened so much in um, British colonies around the world. Uh, people were controlled through dividing them and dividing um, people by religion and keeping religious infighting going, stoking it was very important um, to keep Ireland under control. Ireland had a huge population uh, in 1798. You know, the population was similar enough to the population of England at that point. So if all of Ireland joined together and fought against Britain, it had a huge chance of winning, you know, at that point. Or at least being extremely difficult to subdue. Yeah, yeah. indeed. And if the French somehow managed to get in, it could have been an absolute disaster. Uh, so that's, that's 1798. Now, why, I mean, like, let's focus on it disappearing. Something I found... Yeah, the disappearance. The physical disappearance is fascinating. The yeah. Dis yeah, and it's not equal disappearance as well. A lot of the disappearance from historiography, as I'm sure you can talk about, is the North. 
the North is erased from the historiography of 1798 in Britain. And a lot of these history books written uh, after the Act of Union um, uh, uh, around the turn of the century re-described the 1798 rebellion as this Catholic thing. And they describe priests, like crowds being led by priests, bloodthirsty priests. They actually use a lot of the 1641 rebellion um, uh, scenes and descriptions and repackage them in 1798 because they have to make this into a Catholic thing and make it into a bad thing. Um, uh, when, of course, the absolute epicenter of 1798 was in the Protestant North. Um, and like the whole notion of, of the revolution, the whole of the rebellion, the whole notion of the secularism was very much this dissenting thing, you know, it was this dissenting radicalism, um, which was quashed both through information and violently, right? There were some really violent um, reprisals against the people um, of this area, the people who lived around here, like terrible torture and hangings and things like that, to the point where in the 19th century, people used to wear badges that said, who fears to speak? of 98, who fears to speak? People were afraid to talk about it because um, it, it, you know, they were afraid of what would happen to you. If you even mentioned this rebellion. Please take it away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and even though it was over 200 years ago, those contests over who gets to remember it and how it is remembered, mm. it's still alive and kicking today. Mm. I've always lived in very kind of Protestant and Unionist parts of the North, which I think are probably the ones that have buried that history furthest um, down into the earth. Um, and the North would celebrate kind of 1798 stuff, but over the course of the centuries, it did become seen more of a Catholic nationalist thing. There's sites like where Betsy Grey's memorial were, that mm. memorials would be cyclically destroyed and then re-erected and then people, you know, landowners chasing people off because the nationalists were remembering it in the way that they weren't comfortable with. And I mean, even today, you can see that. I think a really good example is in Belfast City Centre mm. in the entries and the alleyways where um, a lot of the United Irishmen kind of hatched plans and fermented revolution in the little pubs and the Northern Star newspaper um, was based there as well. And that history isn't really marked in Belfast or it hasn't been until recently. There are a few plaques on the walls. There's one to Drennan on Rosemary Street, which was hard won. Um, I think the Masons had to get involved to support a few of them. There are some portraits down a side alley of the Muddlers Club. But really, until recently, um, when Michael Long proposed a statue to Mary Ann McCracken, who was an amazing Presbyterian reformer, kind of early feminist and all-around kind of legend, anti-slaver, um, there have been no public spaces, statues, marks. Um, in the Belfast entries last year during lockdown, it was after the pre-mark fire, and the entries are kind of like backspace of the city, like little arteries, but kind of dirty, neglected, uh, a little bit dangerous maybe mm. these days. And after the pre-mark fire a number of years ago, the council were looking to kind of regenerate the area. So they wanted to do a project based on the history of those exact locations. And you can't avoid the United Irish Rebellion and, and this, all the subversion and the Presbyterian elements. So they went for it and some friends of mine won a contract to do street art in the entries and they have done these lovely street art is a is a gritty kind of medium but it's it's artistic so you can read it many ways there's nothing that says rebels were here mm. <laughs> you know it's pictures that kind of hint 
and encode that kind of history so you can read it on a variety of levels. And other friends of mine run 1798 walking tours through Belfast and they'd be from a more Catholic kind of Republican background. And I was showing them these brilliant street art murals um, in the entries. Like, and they, I think they got quite a lot past Belfast City Council in terms of referencing that historical moment. And my Republican friends were, what does it mean? Why are you being so subtle? You know, why don't you just have your history loud and proud, you know? Whereas, and I, and I understand that and I embrace that and I'm trying to celebrate that in my mm. own life, you know? But for me, the encodedness and the subtlety and you're not quite saying it, you know, out loud and proud, you're kind of sneaking it on the wall, has double meanings. That's kind of how this history or this politics rather has always been done here. Mm. And I think the challenge, remembering or trying to bring back and reference that radical politics today is bringing those two conversations, not to meet in the middle, mm. um, but the, the pride and the, the confidence of the Republican narrative of 1798 and the kind of nuance and the silenceness and the swallowing of it amongst more Protestant unionist communities. And maybe those won't meet in the middle, but to hear each other. And I think that's a really fruitful space for memory in the present. You've, you've reminded me of like the other meaning of Republican, which is like not monarchical, you know, mm -hmm. like rather than being associated with Irish nationalism, it was a movement that was, yes, that was secular, that included, wanted to replace all the religious divisions with just Irishmen, as Wolf Tone, a Protestant, put it. Um, but um, can I ask you, can you tell us who is Betsy Gray? Because I think that's a really fascinating mm. figure. You've mentioned her name a couple of times now. Who's Betsy Gray and what is the meaning of that memory? Betsy Gray was a Presbyterian girl of peasant stock um, who lived in Ballygraney near Six Road Ends. She, um, as most romantic nationalist um, heroines are, was absolutely beautiful and a femme fatale, etc. Um, she's much remembered in kind of folklore writing and novel writing of the time. She went to the Battle of Balnehinch with her boyfriend and her brother, and they were all killed. Um, because of her social class, we don't obviously know a huge amount about her life and what it might have been like. Um, a few bits in the Bangor Museum, which were kind of fancy plates and then a little sugar bowl and catcher. I don't know if that's a fancy thing to have or not. <laughs> but um, she has been um, kind of made into the thing of myth and legend, you know, in terms of the Northern Rising. But she was Presbyterian and, you know, even though she's a nationalist femme fatale and heroine, she is really fondly remembered by the locals in the post office of the Radical Teapot <laughs> fame, mm -hmm. a new cafe has opened just by a local woman um, called Jane Robbie. And she's called it the Betsy Gray Cafe. I nearly fell off my seat when I saw it because usually you wouldn't be so upfront about these things. You'd speak about it quietly mm. with neighbors. But no, she's put it on the thing. She's selling 1798 books. And it's really become a thing with passers-by and locals kind of coming in and storytelling to the point where we actually had a history event there a couple of weeks ago um, where we gathered friends and neighbours and descendants of um, the United Irishmen and some people who had the Informers pub, James Dillon's mm. pub on their land, all people who kind of were cherishing that history and had stories about it. Um, we had Republicans, we had Unionists, we had it in the Orange Hall car park 
and they were, thought the event was so great they've invited us to use their hall the next time. We had readings from Ulster Scott speakers, you know. So whilst Betty Gray has become a nationalist heroine in the lexicon, she is much loved still, as I think those histories are locally in the townlands and small places. Um, in County Down and County Antrim, which is really interesting. Fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we'd love to throw uh, this open to the audience if Great anyone idea. has any questions at all. Maybe none of you have any questions and we'll just keep going. We'll have a roving mic you um, do. Who, coming round to anyone who has any questions. So you're like, if anyone has any anything that's like come up during the during our chat or I don't know, an observation or a question, like feel free to just put your hand up and we'll get the mic over to you. Um, but yeah. Going once, going or indeed, twice. Linda, if you want to. Oh, we have a question oh, over here, a, yeah. yeah. Thanks. Do you, still, uh, do you see these traditions still being created in the modern world? I'm thinking of things like Trump Towers and the creation of Dubai and, you know, and the, the high-rise buildings there. Mm. Or is it something that actually it was a thing of the past that we're living with, but it doesn't really continue nowadays? That's a really good question, uh, and I get asked it a lot. Um, my perspective on this is very um, uh, uh, specific uh, because of the nature of my research. Um, from my point of view, all of this kind of, the balloon of nobility and rank burst after the French Revolution, and that what we get left with is money. And money performs a, a similar kind of thing, but it's different. Um, it doesn't rely on, on uh, wealth being natural. In fact, the opposite. It relies on, on money being natural, um, that people exchanging money in a capitalistic way being natural. It relies on that being natural. Uh, but it actually relies on the idea, of course, the whole Trump dream is relying on the idea that anyone can be Trump, you know, if, if they want to be. Anyone can build Trump Towers. Uh, I don't know if the two are necessarily connected at all, of course. You know, um, this, this whole thing is... Uh, what I call it is a, is a power strategy, um, uh, nobility. It's based on a power strategy where essentially the people in power, the people who get power, define what power even is. And therefore, everyone else is kind of already built into their template. So if, if you define yourself as what is superior, everyone else around you automatically becomes inferior to varying degrees. And the only way they can become superior is by approaching you, by, you know, by getting closer and closer to what you are. So a really good example of that is nobility and gentry, for instance. So you know, nobility have, have titles, they have their seats in the House of Lords, they have these ancestries. Um, gentry don't necessarily have any of that, but they imitate it. It's like a pastiche of nobility. You know, you have gentry who are also kind of keep records of their family names. They also kind of you know, live in smaller versions of these big houses, and they kind of they ape the nobility. And as a, as a reward, essentially, for that, they are allowed to be considered you know, a certain degree superior. You know? mm -hmm. So the further away you get from this um, uh, in this old system, uh, the more inferior you are. So it is a, the whole thing is a power strategy. Um, my theory and my research is that that's why it's lasted so long. Um, that's why nobility, this template of nobility has lasted so long. Um, it's because uh, it works, basically. It works. Um, one of the things that brought down um, this template isn't only, um, in my, 
from what my research says, it isn't only the French Revolution and the changes of economies, it's also that we got a new sense of natural inequality, and that was essentially racism. Um, around the time of the French Revolution, we get the first divisions of humanity in, um, by naturalists into quote-unquote major human races. Um, and because the world was such a bigger place by the end of the 18th century, it became more important for white people to define themselves as superior than certain ranks within white people to define themselves as superior. Um, but you'll notice a similarity between you know, uh, uh, ranks, this idea of upper ranks, and race, you know, like um, if we look around at some of the pictures, we might notice that, you know, uh, there's glowing white skin all around us. And the whiter your skin is, is you know, is, it does mean something in a world of colonization. Um, uh, and this, you know, like this, this bleeds into, into uh, racism. So, yes, I think it, it has gone away. It's not necessarily been replaced by other things. Um, there are other things there. Those other things maybe always were there as well. But I better stop talking because I, I could go on about that forever. And it's a bit <laughs> off topic. <laughs> Great question. Hi, I hope I'm allowed to ask a question. Um, yeah, no, just with this topic of kind of, I feel like what's coming up is like the idea of constructed narratives and how power relates to that. And what just was occurring to me as someone who comes from the South, is it's not just the Protestant history that has this sort of rigid alignment between Protestantism and Unionism. It's also in the South, in the 1798 rebellion, we don't often talk about the Protestants involved, even though it's so obvious, like with Wolf Tone and so on. Like the constructed narrative that we get in school in terms of history is sometimes propagandistic because there is this need to assert and to re-establish power for, for, the, for the people who were founding the state. And, and naturally, because, you know, it, it's, it, I'm, not, I'm not, you know, regardless of how you view that, it was, it's another um, method, like education is another method towards power. So I just wanted to ask you whether, you know, because this idea that Claire brought up of like the out and proud of the Catholicism connected with republicanism, it's still an oversimplification of a history. So, um, and even the idea of something being out and proud, it's like, well, what remains hidden within that? Um, so yeah, so I just wanted to ask you about, about that, about the, about the complexity of the history of republicanism and how that's reflected within the Irish, like the republic state, and, and how, how maybe it's simplified because of the power of the Catholic Church and, and that type of thing. So I just wanted to hear your thoughts on it's that. Thanks. A big topic. I th that was kind of interesting how the performance of power, one of the things you thought of, Tim, was the church, like going into a church mm. and the regalia and the environment and the guilt and all of this. And this, it, it is connected. And of course, the idea of monarchy is, of course, mm. intimately connected with Catholicism. And it, the meaning of um, what people who wanted to have a separate power structure in Ireland to the island of Britain the meaning of how they define that evolved over time. So there's, you had this fascinating time um, where, for example, Arthur Griffith, the president of Sinn Féin around the early 1900s, wanted a king. Like that kind of blows our mind because we associate republicanism with anti-monarchy sentiments. But in the nationalism of the time, which was common all around Europe, nations that were looking to assert nationhood copied 
those co countries and systems around them. And in order to have credibility, they wanted a royal family. It was like part of the assert or the communication of power, like we've been talking about. It was one of those symbols that you needed a flag, a national anthem, and a king. So there was this hilarious trade in spare German princes that went on when these new nations were emerging around Europe. So for example, Greece got a spare German prince, didn't like him very much, returned him, got another one. <laughs> this literally happened. Like, um, and there, there were just loads and loads of principalities in Germany, basically. So there was always a spare one around. And for a time, um, Irish people who wanted a um, separate power structure in Ireland wanted a prince too. There was a discussion about, you know, how this would work. And it's intimately connected, of course, with Catholicism, which was, you know, fits very hand, hand in hand with, monar with monarchy. Mm. Um, so yes, this is something that has evolved over time. Um, and well, I think what's interesting and sort of potent about 1978 is that secular nature of it, which is what we were saying about the, and, and the fact that so many leaders were Protestant. Um, but it is definitely something that's woven through the narrative of seeking uh, a power located in, in the island of Ireland because their people's interests were aligned in that. Because one of the reasons why there was this rebellion was because it wasn't just Catholics who were discriminated against under the penal laws, it was also dissenters. It, it privileged the Anglo-Irish Protestants um, and everybody else was to a certain extent then non-privileged. I don't know if you want to add to that, Tim. Well, I'd love to actually uh, pass it over to Claire, and I'd love yeah. to hear your response um, uh, to the question as well, like in terms of place, sense of place, um, and how this, the, the fantasy, the southern fantasy of 1798 is also this kind of hindrance to, to really understanding it. Um, I'm not sure how much we know about the southern fantasy of 1798 <laughs> in the north. You yeah. know, I posted something on Twitter the other week. It's a shame that 1798 isn't taught in schools to mm. a great pushback amongst, especially Northern Protestants. We do know, but you know, there's a, resent, a resenting of being taught your own history, do you mm. know? Um, but I got the impression that it was taught quickly, whipped past on the way to the more fundamental piece of history, which was the Act of Union. So I'm not really sure that the North on Northern Protestants register what narratives of yeah. um, mm. 1798 are like in the South, but... I mean, I personally don't feel like I, I did think it was a Catholic thing. Like, I thought I always knew that it was, like, Protestant-led. Um, I mean, that, that has been my understanding of it always, but I am aware that that's not the case for everybody because I have met people who aren't aware of that and who do... But this this is funnily enough, actually, in England, but um, who who associate Irish nationalism or any kind of um, yeah, like the search for an Irish located power as being automatically Catholic. So that is an understanding that is out there for sure. I don't think it's taught in schools though. Like I, that isn't at least that doesn't appear with my own. No, no, I don't think it's taught in schools that seventeen ninety eight was Catholic. That oh, no, certainly doesn't occur so. here with no. my experience. Yeah. Uh, no, it's true. Um, uh, it's it, the secular thing and the United Irishman and Wolf Tone, all that is, is taught quite um, 
from my whenever I studied in school um, yeah. a, a while ago. Yeah. Um, uh, that was quite clear. Uh, but I think maybe one of the hindrances might be a that it's not given the same weight as 1916, for instance, even Maybe. though it was 10 times bigger. Yeah. And B, that it's framed in this in the narrative, right? So, I mean, I think this has improved a lot uh, in, over time, but the Irish uh, curriculum uh, in the Republic, you know, it was very narrative-driven. Uh, so it created uh, a very engaging, um, but not always very rounded, you know, a, a, a idea of what Irish history was. Um, uh, so that kind of misses out the fact uh, of the North and the role of just how much, you know, no Northern Ireland today, you know, the place of Northern Ireland was mm -hmm. the epicenter of this, you yeah. know? Yeah. yeah. Fascinating, yeah. I think it's got such interest in parallels today because if you look at that period in our history, it was kind of the Northerners who were the radical edge mm. of that movement. Mm. And if you bring that up to present, I mean, I have feminist friends who would argue that the North is where the most radical kind of edge of feminism on the island um, has emerged because it's come so much out of working class um, communities and because they had to stand up to paramilitaries to get their work done, that they've just done a lot of that work. Now, Southern feminists might contest that, but I've also talked to um, trade unionist friends and socialist friends, and a, a kind of recurring theme seems to be that narratives of the North from the South or that it's a kind of cultural backwater, you know, and very people stuck in their ways and traditional habits. But in the North, we are ferociously <laughs> radical in mm. historical sense. And also, I think you can see those currents in, in contemporary politics. There are fascinating layers to all of these perceptions. Um, did anyone else? Yeah, Linda, you wanted to come in. Well, I think one of the things just talking about um, 1798 it really resonates a lot with me and my own family. I, when I was a teenager, my father gave me the, the little book, Betsy Gray and the Hearts of Down to read. And I read it and it was interesting, but it didn't seem like real life at the time. You know, I think when you're a teenager. And it was only many years later when I got involved in the Irish language that a lot of things started to fit together. And we were taken on a tour and we went to Balna Hinch and St. Field and learned a little bit about the history. And I remember just feeling, you know, because I am a Presbyterian and it was people from the niceness community who were telling me about my own history because I certainly didn't hear about it in school and 1798 is not taught in the state school system. But it also made me remember my nanny who was born in the Newton Arch Road when I was a child used to say to me, my mother wouldn't have had a Presbyterian over the door. And I used to say, but Nanny, I'm a Presbyterian. Never mind, way out and play. <laughs> and my father's people were Church of Ireland. And my great-grandmother was from St. Field. Now, recently I've made more sense of that because my great-grandmother was illegitimate. And though she was born quite a while after the 1798 rebellion, her grandparents who reared her were born before the 1798 rebellion. And they worked for the Blackwood Prices. They were Church of Ireland people who worked for the Blackwood Prices in Saintfield. They were the landowners. And their house was burned. Part of their house was burned during the, um, the rebellion by the, the United Irish men. So as I said to my father, we were on the wrong side, Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> there is a connection with the place that we're in to this rebellion. Mm. If you look at the... There's a timeline that's laid out in a kind of corridor, which is 
over in front of where this room stands. And it says um, Hillsborough was relatively unaffected by the 1798 rebellion, but the um, fort was raided for some muskets. So, aha, <laughs> like there was some of it going on then. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Right. Um, one, of, one of my favorite um, little details about 1798 is in a, a novel by Mariah Edgeworth. No, sorry, I think it's memoirs by the novelist Mariah Edgeworth. And she talks of noticing, they hear about the rebels coming, the United Irishmen are coming over the hill in Edgeworth's town. She was Mariah Edgeworth, so she lived in Edgeworth's town, of course, another right. Anglo-Irish family. Um, and she caught a glimpse of her servants being delighted. So she just realized, oh my God, they're everywhere. They're you know, all among like, us. They're in the house. All these people who I thought were loyal to me, they've been plotting, right? So it's this secrets. It's just going around. There's, there's pikes in the thatch. You know, there's secret societies everywhere. The servants in your house are plotting to kill you. I think it's, <laughs> it just really, it really kind of captures like the mood of 1798. But um, uh, another question maybe yeah. um, before we get stuck on that. If anyone has one. If anyone has one, yeah. it's all right if you don't. I think there's one up at the front here, just yeah. on my Was there my one at the back right. as well, we'll keep it in mind? No? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Um, it's, this question is sort of an extension of um, which has been discussed in a, a previous question, just in relation to sort of the power structures in terms of how they're entwined with narratives and mythologies and how, you know, the concept of 1798 is mythologized, but it, you know, unfortunately has been more mythologized and revered by maybe one tradition more so in republicanism on the island of Ireland, more so than, you know, its deep roots within unionism or with, you know, uh, the PUL, Protestant Loyalist Unionist community, unfortunately. Um, but I feel that some of that sort of that, um, that narrative is embellished as part of the power structure of nationalism and sort of being on eternally on the right side um, of history against, you know, sort of the... The, the imperial powers that be of the day. Um, now, though, however, I think with, you know, um, much more kind of stability generally in these kind of narratives and discussions um, in modern day Northern Ireland, the six counties, the North, um, sort of how do we feel, you know, is there a greater opportunity now than ever among a younger generation, you know, maybe greater integrated schooling is one definitely avenue of achieving this, just to share these narratives um, and to sort of, bring everyone into the common fold, so to speak, um, at a more granular level from a younger age, among younger people. Obviously, Linda's work um, with um, people who are, well, obviously it's open to everyone, but people who are um, typically from a Protestant background, being having this exposure to something which is traditionally seen as much more of an, a nationalist kind of weapon, almost the Irish language, is obviously a brilliant example. But are there other examples as well? I suppose Claire's work as well is an is example as well of um, sort of repeating these histories. Um, are there other opportunities to be seen for younger people and younger audiences, not just for the validity of desectarianizing these things, but also just making them interesting stories and, in, you know, for like, say, the, the TikTok generation, so to speak? Mm. Well, I think, I mean, we can speak from the experience of our podcast. Um, it's probably the best place to come at that from. And from the messages we've received, from the people we spoke to, from everything we've gotten feedback, it feels like there is a ravenous hunger for that kind of thing. Yeah. There's a ravenous hunger for new perspectives. There's a ravenous hunger for understanding the, the quote-unquote other side or recreating what we even think of as history and recreating what we even think of as politics. And it's hard to even summarize like what exactly that is because there's so many diverse forms of that rising mm -hmm. up. The only 
kind of con the only unifying factor I'm able to um, put to it is that it's 20 years after the Good Friday Agreement. I think maybe, you know, there's just a lot of 20-year-olds out there who, like, for the first time in a century have just, you know, not had to deal with what everyone a little bit older than them has uh, on this island um, or has not just, you know, lived in, in that world that existed before the Good Friday Agreement. That's, uh, that doesn't mean that this is all because of the Good Friday Agreement, but that's the one thing that I'm finding. But otherwise, it seems very organic. It seems like a groundswell of reinvention of Ireland like mm. by by people north and south of the border? I think it's a, a couple of things. So like one of the things that I feel really strongly is sort of like the reason that our podcast exists is because I don't think you can understand the current day or events that currently happen unless you understand who we are and what we are and where it came from and what happened before because everything is just the next chapter in what happened before like the history explains everything like we've been describing the landscape like what we can see this is all this is all speaking to us about the past so everything is you know it's i think it's not enough to just accept the world as it is it doesn't make sense unless you have the backstory um, and i think that listening to claire describe her explanations of history is very much that chimes with what i've seen of exploration of history across the island actually um, in 2016 it was 100 years since the Easter Rising since 20, uh, uh, 1916 and what I saw during those commemorations was this mass societal engagement with sort of reinterrogating and excavating history and it was at like a micro level and a local level and a sort of a voluntary basis level um, that overshadowed anything that was sort of state-led or official-led. It was about people discovering their own family histories, looking at this stuff. It was coming from every kind of perspective. You had women, like, un uncovering women's narratives. You had the rediscovery of Ireland's role in World War I, which had been one of these sort of, like, quiet, not celebrated or not marked parts of history, which was sort of re-excavated. Um, and people were sort of into that. So it was all about the diversity of narratives and questioning received narratives. Um, so uh, that was so fascinating and very sort of healthy. There was a kind of, um, there was this real hunger for and tolerance of plurality um, that, that was very interesting and people were interested in, in debating it and it was this kind of mass engagement. So I think that, yeah, like our podcast probably was born out of the spirit of that. It was a sort of a, you know, in, in terms of excavating the past and finding answers to what's happening in our present mm. in what came before, which I think is almost like the only way that you can go. Um, so yeah, personally, my experience is that it's very, very rich and rewarding and l like a journey, like Linda mentioned, the meaning of tourists being a journey, ex excavating the Irish language. It's something that's continuing. It's, it's a process. There's also, I think, a at the moment in the society that we live in, people are interested in identity and they're interested in stories about how they came to be and what it sort of tells us about society 
people's opportunities and how it shapes their lives. So this is something that's very kind of relevant, I think, for mm. our current moment all over the world, not just in Ireland. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think, yeah. I mean, if you just look at the books that we're reading right now, the novels, mm. and I, I was saying this to someone else, I was like, I remember when I was a teenager, uh, and he agreed with me, he said, all we read were, you know, books by, by white guys, you know, because we thought they were the best. And everyone kind of thought they were the best when I was a teenager, uh, like in the 90s, I mean. Um, and that's, it's changed because people want more different stories. They've heard that story. And, you know, I don't want to read those stories either myself anymore. You know, um, people want different stories. And history, until really relatively recently, was the story of white guys, you know, like, it was the story of white guys. And we want different stories. And there's loads of really good ones that we just haven't heard yet you know they, they've been here this whole time and mm -hmm. we, we haven't heard them and nobody even suggested that we look them up so it does feel like everyone's kind of rediscovering this at the same time now that we've realized that they're even there in the first place right. we hadn't even really noticed that they were there in the first place right yeah. so yeah like this idea of what's hidden and what's celebrated is it's so profound you know there's so much to discover because what has been remembered as history is so limited, mm. basically. Yeah. And we actually, it's actually just there if you go and look for it, you know. And turns out it's strangely like unifying for yeah. human beings to kind of look into these more micro histories. It's like we're yeah. actually all very, you know, like interlinked. And, yeah. you know, we have a lot of shared experiences. Yeah. Listen, we have like a few minutes left if, if there's any question yeah. left. Yes. We have a so. question here on my left. So what you just said, um, where you know people are trying to find their own identity, their own stories, do you think media and politicians are helping or hindering in that process? <laughs> well, I, I'd love to actually let our guests like comment on this as well. <laughs> yeah, does <laughs> might it, do any have a better media, local what angle? What do you think? Yeah, I mean. Uh, well, what can I say? I think I think on all parts of, of our island right now, they're about ten or twenty years behind us. I think Probably, like, that yeah. seems obvious, but that's just where I'm coming from. Maybe yeah. I mean my day job is like I'm a reporter. I write for the Irish Times, um, and I re I report mostly in European affairs. So I haven't. I I did used to report on the UK and um, from London, and also the Republic as well on politics. What I think is an issue in politics, a generational change. Uh, this is something that's sort of inherent in power structures is that they do seek to preserve. Um, and, it, and, and so what, what you have sometimes is that leaders are slower than the society. They, they, they move at a slower rate. Also because I don't think that political parties have been particularly good at innovating to the radical changes that our, our society has seen, particularly in the way that people communicate, digitalization, the way that people socialize. And you saw that, I think, with our um, kind of revolutionary referendums that we had in the Republic to um, legalize same-sex marriage and abortion, which are actually rare in terms of world comparisons. I think we were the first to actually vote uh, to legalize those things. Getting a majority to legalize both those things wouldn't be a given in many countries, even where they're already legal. So um, that was something that the political class took a lot of convincing to realize was possible. And they were actually dragged there by the public. The public was ahead of them on this, but there was uh, conservatism and a lack of realization that society had moved on. And nobody thought that the kind of percentages that we saw in favor of those um, socially liberal reforms were there. It surprised everybody, you know, because there was this consensus that society was much more conservative than it was. 
Um, so I do think that that reflects a certain disconnect and what I'm talking about, about um, a, a certain delay in terms of general, generational change in political parties is also to do with how political leaders come to the fore as well. This is something that is a problem everywhere. Like, um, who are the political leaders in England, for example? Who are they? It, it's... Um, it, it's not necessarily the case that leaders come up through a grassroots process, um, which I think can also add to a, a disconnect as well. But it's not something that I don't, I don't, I very doubt very much I'm the most qualified person in this room to comment on that. So if anybody else wants to have their say, <laughs> please just put up your hand and we'll get the mic to you. Does, or indeed, does Karen have a, a comment to make? Is yeah. politics hindering our growth? Yeah. <laughs> I think politics is definitely hindering our groups because as you um, said, Naomi, I think communities are way, way ahead of politicians. But I think another thing that um, interests me, it's just about that kind of community leadership and um, or so-called leadership. And what we see here in Northern Ireland, and I suppose a lot of places are the same, is, you know, we see people coming out on the streets in, you know, certain numbers and, um, you know, giving off about whatever aspect of um, politics or whatever it is and claiming that they speak for a particular community. But what always interests me is when you look at, no matter how big or small these protests are, they don't represent what the majority of the community think because the majority of the community are in their house with their door shut and don't want to be part of it and don't have a voice. And they actually are the voices that we're not hearing um, they're maybe afraid to speak out, they don't want to get involved, they just don't particularly care. And I think the reality is the majority of the um, communities are not interested and do not prior prioritise the things that the politicians say they do. And yeah. yeah. I would just reiterate all of that. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I think ordinary life here, 20 years, like you said, past where the politicians are in their heads and mm. the constant media outrage cycles. I mean, we are Protestants who sent our kids to Catholic school and I thought, you know, we were great, you know, blessed be the peacemakers. I was gonder because like everybody was already doing it, you know? <laughs> the school was full of mixed marriages, you know, it's a Catholic school. There's some um, loyalist kids go there. The dad was leading the 12th of July parade last year, you know, beating his big bass drum, that to me, that's the kind of ordinary richness, you know, that we're at, at the Betsy Gray event last week, we had a, a Republican and a prison guard have a conversation about internment, a really raw kind of beautiful exchange. And for me, that's what people just do in the North. We have learned to negotiate difference delicately, awkwardly, with humor, mm -hmm. silence, um, blundering into things and yeah I look forward to the day that our politics reflects on Wow okay. I love that phrase ordinary richness fantastic well, I, I also thought I was the first Protestant Irish speaker so I can agree <laughs> with what you say <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a, a beautiful place to leave it. Indeed, um, yeah. And I think we can say really uh, in conclusion in this beautiful place representing power uh, that maybe the power, you know, in a place is not always where you think it is. <laughs> you know, um, maybe, the, maybe the power is, is hidden from sight sometimes. Listen, thank you so much to our two wonderful speakers. Yes. Thank you to you for coming. Um, uh, we were so glad to be here this evening. And thank you so much, especially to the staff 
staff at Hillsborough Castle. Uh, you have been absolutely magnificent and you've been so welcoming to us and you put on a great show. Um, thank you again for coming. It was brilliant to have you all and uh, yeah, enjoy the rest of your evening. Slana Walia. Right. Bye. 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 Bye.